Welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Transgender School podcast. We're so excited to have our guest with us today, Aiden Olson-Kennedy. Jackie, I think you are going to kick off for a question with a question for Aiden. Oh, yeah. I was just curious what that mountain was on the painting in your background. It looks really beautiful. It's Mount Rainier, and I had a client who was from that part of the country and relocated to Los Angeles for a long time. And her parting gift to me, because the therapy fees were quite reduced, so her parting gift to me was this painting that she had painted of Mount Rainier as she returned up to that part of the country. That's beautiful. I love it. Yes. Everyone listening, you should watch this on YouTube so that you can see the beautiful painting behind Aiden. (laughs) Great question, Jackie. Yeah. So we're excited to be here today. We're very lucky to have Aiden with us today for this important conversation. So I'm going to take a couple minutes to introduce Aiden to you formally, and then we'll just have a free-flowing conversation because Aiden, as you will see, is a wealth of knowledge, and we could be here for hours (laughs) if we really wanted to tap into all the knowledge he has. So Aiden Olson-Kennedy is a licensed clinical social worker and the executive director of the Los Angeles Gender Center. He's been providing psychotherapy to trans gender and non-binary adolescents for over 10 years. He has a passion for working with parents and caregivers like me, which I have been, have received the benefits of for years now. So he has this passion for working with parents and caregivers of trans and non-binary youth. Aiden is considered a national expert. If you Google him, you'll come up with pages and pages and pages of his conference presentations, interviews, trainings. He's just so immersed in this world world and offers so much value in so many ways. I don't know how he does it all. He's a national expert. He's trained thousands of professionals and families across the U.S. and also internationally. In addition to his work with the LA Gender Center, he has a private practice in Los Angeles. He serves adolescent and adult transgender and non-binary individuals and their families. And we could go on and on and on. I'm sure more will come out in the conversation, but I want to say on a personal note that, as I said, I've been able to benefit in ways that there aren't even words to describe from Aiden's expertise, his knowledge, his generosity in sharing so patiently over and over and over what we all need to learn. And that has been largely through our participation in the Transforming Family Support Group, where Aiden is one of our very, very important professionals who attends, volunteer professionals who out of the goodness of his heart attends and educates us all regularly. Those who are listening who are in Transforming Family know that we quote Aiden all the time. He's like, our guru will be like, well, Aiden says this and Aiden says that. But most of the time you're actually there. So we're lucky enough to be able to say, Aiden, can you please speak to this? Can you please tell us about this? And we know those of us who've been in the group several years, I've been in the group for three and a half years. You say you have to share a lot of the same things over and over, but it never feels that way. It always feels like you're completely attending to and empathetic with, for instance, a new parent who just found out that their child is trans and is struggling and and doesn't understand. It doesn't have the education that we all come to to have over time. So I just want to say thank you. And I I can't even express my gratitude to you. And it comes behind me. You can picture the thousands and thousands of parents that are with me right now thanking you and and our kids even more so because it's like, help my parent understand, you know, help me by helping my parent when you are helping everyone. So I won't gush too much more, but I just want to throw out there so we don't forget to get to it. If you can imagine, you know, Aiden is this national, international leading expert on mental health for trans youth, trans adults and their families. And his spouse happens to all 
also be a leading national expert, both of them highly sought after, Dr. Johanna Olson Kennedy, who's the medical director of the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development at Children's Hospital LA, who is also one of our volunteer professionals. So this power team comes in and Aiden educates us all about mental health for our kids and, and Dr. Joe educates us all about the medical care for our kids. And so it's just an amazing combination and how you two came together. I don't know, but it, it just blows us all away with how much service you provide in the world for all of us. And so I'll leave it there and I'll turn it over to you now, actually, Aiden, um, to sh- if, if you don't mind sharing with us, like on a personal level, why you're so passionate about all of this and, and you're a little about your story. Sure. Well, thank you for that introduction. It was a lot. And I appreciate that, you know, and it's a great place to start because the work that I do and the reason why I do it, it's self-serving in a lot of ways, right? It's very healing for me to be able to participate in and help people's process and help parents. Not because my experience as a trans person was particularly challenging, but it was a little isolated. It felt a little lonely. And I think that my parents whether they would have taken advantage of it or not remains unknown. But but I think my parents could have really benefited from not feeling so lonely and confused in the process, right? And so every family, every life I'm invited into, every family I'm invited into um, is I deeply respect and I deeply, deeply honor the vulnerability that families and parents give to me as a virtual stranger to their lives at a time in which they're feeling a little vulnerable themselves potentially. So... I transitioned in a pretty rural part of Northern California 14 years ago. And at that time, um, I'm sure there was other trans people in the area, but I just didn't know any of them. So it Mm -hmm. felt very alone and lonely for me as well. And and I wasn't able to find mental health services. And so I had to drive three and a half hours each way every weekend to meet with a gender specialist. And that's one of, and, you know, of course, pay for it out of pocket. And I was a student. And so thank you, student loans. But what that really created for me was a deep, deep desire for accessibility. Accessibility is so crucial. And then sort of fast forward and I started attending conferences and met Joe and then it sort of has all kind of just taken off from there. Thank you for sharing that. So I imagine that with your, the folks you see who are trans and family members, it's really helpful to know that you are trans yourself and you can relate in a way that we can't when that cisgender people simply can't understand. We can go as far as we possibly can to empathize and, and understand. So Jackie, you probably have a follow-up question. Well, yeah, I, I would just be so curious um, as a trans person doing this work and putting yourself in spaces where you're oftentimes, I imagine doing a lot of work to convince cis people to accept trans people. What is that like for you on a personal level, emotionally? Does it wear on you? I assume you have strategies that you've developed to cope with it or to make it work for you. And I would just just love to hear about what that's like. Yeah, thank you for that question. And Bridget, your your being trans certainly has helped me from a credibility perspective, but also there are parents who do not want their children to see me specifically because I'm trans and there isn't a belief system. I think early on in the process in which people are like, I have an agenda to make their kid trans, right? So it's, it's a sort of dual perspective, but Jackie, to your question, there are times that it is very challenging and it's actually not really the times in which parents are like, you are biased and I don't want you to see my kid. Cause I can sort of see that for what it is of the ridiculous nature. And that doesn't really feel personal to me. I think that the times where my family went through a process, but it was never rejected and, and I was I was never excluded from the family at all. And so I don't get really triggered from parents' conversations. I actually struggle more when I feel like I have not had a meaningful impact that's going to positively trickle down to their child or, or adult child or, or, you know, adolescent child. That I think that by the nature of the work that I do and the way that I have done it, I have to pay very close attention to understanding my limitations to Bridget's points of like, you know, we can, you can understand to a certain point. It's like, well, I can inform and educate and impact to a certain point. Um, but then, then that parent sort of has to pick up the ball and, and do the work from there. And, and when that doesn't happen or when a parent comes to transforming family and there is, they are lovingly confronted, right? Part of growth is confrontation um, and they don't come back. Oh, 
that's really, really hard for me. And I, I have to work really hard to kind of just like let it go that they will circle back when it's their time or, or not, but I can't control those things. Yeah. One other question I was just curious is what was like the light bulb moment or was it a more gradual process of realizing that you wanted to do this work, whether it was doing mental health work in general, and then specifically doing work with families and with trans people and with people who are just coming out and going through that process? I kind of fell into it, honestly. I was already on a pathway of, of social work and sort of moving into a helping profession. And because I had, was transitioning in a small town where I know there was other trans people, but they weren't living openly, people started asking me to participate in community dialogue and to meet this parent in a non-mental health way. Because prior to that, I came out as a lesbian when I was 15 and, and lived very openly within like the lesbian queer community until I transitioned at 30. And so I had participated in like public education as sort of the L of the LGB sort of continuum. And so the transition to public speaking from a trans perspective, that was very easy. It was about shifting the content. And, you know, in hindsight, I was... I mean, I'm really thankful I was given those opportunities, but, but in hindsight, it was like, I was speaking about something that I was simultaneously experiencing. And while I think that I, hopefully I did no significant harm, but there was a dual process that I think that was both helpful for me, but also in some ways might have been my, made my process a little more challenging because every step of the way, everything that I was doing was available for public consumption. And so I had to, I lived in this place of tremendous consciousness and integrity of my words because it wasn't like, Jackie, you and I are friends and I'm telling you this thing. And the next day I'm like, what the heck was that? That's not what I think at all. I did not have the space to do that. So I had to be very impeccable with my, my word. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that one of the things that is, I think, true and, and Jackie, you know, you may be experiencing this right now as you're participating in education and is that by having people bear witness to our stories and bear witness to our existence can be such a healing part, but it can also manifest pride, pride in self, right? And, and, and so these opportunities to sort of talk about and share in, in you know, spaces such as this or in, or in larger scales where there's hundreds of people in, in other parts of the country, pe- people are bearing witness to me and my stories over and over and over. And, and that is a remarkable experience that very few trans and non-binary people experience. Thank you. That was very well put. Yeah, I definitely feel that about myself. And I'll, I'll ask you one more question that I'll let my mom ask some of the questions she prepared. But just one thing that stood out, your last answer was you, you mentioned hoping that you didn't do harm. And I thought that that's an important concept. And I would just be curious to hear you talk about how that is a guiding principle for you and your work and not doing harm, whether it's to trans people or to families and how that can sometimes put you in conflict maybe with family members or institutions or other um, people. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons I love working sort of an independent contractor as far as education and private practice is that I have total autonomy over what I do, how I do it, and when I do it. That when I have worked in organizations and institutions, it's been really great. There's been benefits, but I come up against things, right? When somebody who's in a position above me is doing, you know, conducting microaggressions and I know it and I'm, you know, sort of speaking to it, there becomes a place where it's like, yeah, sure, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, but you know what else happens? The squeaky wheel gets uninvited to meetings. That's the other thing that happens, right? And, mm-hmm. and so sort of moving into my own domain is, is one of the things. But Susan Landon, who was a tremendous mentor of mine, taught me when I very first started working with her and met her, the value of being willing to loop back around and say, that was a mistake. That thing I said or that thing that I did I didn't know better. And so I want to be accountable. I'm not sorry, but I do want to be accountable and recognize that, that I know better. And so I know I will do better. And I don't always have opportunities to, to do that. But I think that for me, I'm not going to speak or teach or mentor something on something that feels outside of what I feel like I know a lot about. Mm-hmm. So I am asked mm-hmm. to, in fact, I was just asked to do, you know, there's a very large training firm, an agency in, in Los Angeles. And when we mm-hmm. talked about what they wanted me to do, I was like, well, 
of those four things, I can do those two, but those other two, like that's not my thing. And so you have to collaborate with someone else. So I think that's the other way that I make sure that I don't do harm. And I think that the last thing is that I have to be very conscious and aware is that I embody white masculinity and that everything that white masculinity brings with brings to that. And as a generally non-identifiable trans person, my experience as a trans person in the world is very different than people who maybe who don't have those experiences. And so I'm at a place in my career where part of my work is shifting and um, not just creating space for other people, but actually creating space for people to create their own space, which is going to require me to, to shift sort of what my life and what my profession looks like. And that's both exciting and a little sad simultaneously. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Okay. So let's share some of that amazing wisdom that you have. And before we go into it, I want to preface this by saying, and I think we always say in some way that like, we're speaking from our experiences, you're speaking from your but personal experience, but your extensive education and, and practice, but we don't speak for everyone. We know that every situation is unique and different. You know, Jackie and I do a lot of education on all our sites. And sometimes people will kind of call us out and say, well, that's not true for me. And you're not speaking for all trans people. And we say, absolutely, please, please know we're always just speaking. We're trying to educate really from Jackie's experience, my experience as a parent. And we welcome anybody who says that's not true for me. But we still feel it's important to, as you said, you know, allow people to bear witness to what our experience has been, because I think there is a lot to learn from it, even if others' experiences are different. So I just want to have that kind of disclaimer, because I want to move into like your top tips, for lack of a better way of saying it, it goes much deeper than that, for parents when their kids first come out. Because as I said, I mean, just to be transparent, like I've heard you say the same things over and over. And it's hard because I could hear them a million times and I still, but I feel for you, like how hard must it be? You know, I heard you say things three years ago that you're saying to the new parent who's at Transforming Family meeting for the first time and having that patience, you know? So I really, I hope that this episode might be an opportunity for us to say to folks who maybe don't come to a meeting or, or are willing to open themselves up to hearing some of the tips before they come to a meeting or whatever it it might purpose, it might serve. Like it's a blur to me when Jackie first came out really like, but I know people said things to me that I, I almost couldn't hear and needed to hear 50 times to really have them sink in. Like, what would you say to parents who, someone who might be listening, for sure, some parent is going to be listening to this, whose kid just came out and they're just, they're, they don't know. They don't know what that means. They, I mean, one of the first things you and I, we always hear is like, I don't believe it. It must be something else. It can't be. I didn't have signs. So what are some of the top things that you can offer at that stage? I think the most important piece is parents or caregiver in that place to feel safe, to feel heard. And I think that as a trans person, if I can create a safe interaction and empathic interaction, then that's a tremendous start because if people are feeling attacked or they're feeling that they are going to be, you know, offend people, uh, they're not going to talk. And part of what parents need to do in that place is talk. They need to talk openly and they need to talk honestly and they need to share the ugly stuff. Right. Because a lot of parents in that place are feeling things about their child that they could never have imagined they would have felt. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is that when a child comes out or, or an adolescent, when somebody comes out, right. Part of the way that I conceptualize this is that, is that it's actually inviting people in because for a lot of people, there has been a coming in process where it has been private And maybe shared on Discord or Reddit or, you know, some form, but outside of the outside of the ears of family members and parents frequently or caregivers frequently. And so when that person says, like, here's what's going on, it's inviting people into a very often private process. Right. Mm -hmm. And so part of the, the early education, I think, is helping parents consider that this is not new for their young person. Right. Because for parents, it's it can feel very new because Mm -hmm. particularly if parents either have chosen to see that there's no signs or there legitimately were no signs, it does feel very new. It feels very sudden. And people in that place, trans and non-binary people in that place, you know, sort of my point earlier are not 
positioned to be educating people at that about that process. There's a fragility in that early stages. And there's a lot of, I don't know. And it's, it can feel quite threatening when people are looking for things to make this not true to say, I don't know. And so there's, there's two things that happen. People just like shut down and cut off communication entirely, which really often frustrates and infuriates parents. Or the other things, the other thing is they'll answer and they'll say things and then they'll have to go back later and undo it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in those early places, I would really encourage parents to resist the urge to try to get educated from a macro, like, what does this mean educated, but educated, like, what does this mean for my kid, right? To resist the urge to try to get that information from their young person, to really seek that information out from resources such as of this that you all are providing and transforming family and other places where there are parents who can mentor who are, who are further along. I have participated in groups where all of the parents were brand new and it was just this like, circling the toilet bowl of this is terrible and this right and it's like oh my goodness mm-hmm. you you need a parent to say like i remember and here's where i'm at now sort of to shine that kind of hope one of the things that that is beneficial for me both as a trans person but having done this work for so long is that i do know the pattern mm-hmm. i do know generally thematically what this looks like and what it, how it trickles down individually sure but if i can equip a parent or parents or caregivers with thematically they can then go to their young person to go to their home and say that piece of information, this is what it specifically looks like for my kid. And I can react from that as opposed to young person who is in this very, you know, fragile space. Why, 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 why? And it's like, when we ask somebody why there's inherent judgment connected to it. So that would be sort of the things is like, reach out to don't look to your, your kid or your young one Mm -hmm. for information and be reasonable about the amount of time that you are going to hold this information in privacy. It has to be a collaborative conversation. You don't want to betray the trust of your kid, but there does come a time where it's important to, to gain permission to say, I need one other person. I need somebody because this holding this in isolation is not helping you. One thing that I feel like plays a lot into this is a sense of control in a sense that for a parent, well, my kid's a minor in a lot of cases where we're talking about trans people who might be under 18. My kid's a minor. They don't get to decide what time they come home. They don't get to decide whether or not they go to school. So why should they get to decide if they're going to go on hormones? Why should they get to decide if they're going to go by this new identity that I don't feel comfortable with, that I don't feel represents my kid who I created, who I have a right to control who they are. How would you say that 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 desire to have control over your kid plays into it? And and what are your strategies for trying trying to combat that? Yeah, my experience is that when people attempt to exert control and we can make it broadly about anything or any topic, what is behind that is often fear. And particularly for parents of trans kids, what is the available language is, I don't believe this, right? All of the things that you just said. But if that parent can partner with somebody who has the experience and the empathy and and the patience to sort of be in that place with that person and saying, you know, I'm wondering if you also feel scared. I'm wondering if you also feel like you don't really know what to do. And as a parent, we don't like those feelings. Right. And so sort of helping parents or caregivers, what I learned from Joe is like, what's the there there, right? So the there is like, I think my kid's too young. And it's like, okay, but that's the easy one. What's behind that, right? And doing it in a way that is in partnership is a fine line with, for me, it's a fine line with being an allyship and partnership with parents while simultaneously just like nudge, 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 right? You know, and I, they can't feel pushed because if they, no one likes to sort of be pushed from the back. But it's like, um, you know, my dog, if she doesn't want to get off the bed, you know, I sort of like gently push it. She <laughs> digs her heels in and sort of scooch. Sometimes I'm doing that with parents where it's like, it's just scooch mm-hmm. you just a tiny, tiny bit. But it is, it's also naming, naming things that I think it's hard for parents to name, which is the fear. But also parents can sometimes feel embarrassed, And that's a very hard thing to to name and to talk about. So if I can put that in the room or if I can put that in the, in the relationship, parents can say a little bit, and we can talk about that and we can unpack that a bit. 
parents listening know that this is so important what Aiden's sharing. And I can relate if you're a parent listening and thinking like, this is just so hard. I'm not here yet. I, I hear it intellectually. Like I was there. I, I am that parent that Aiden's describing that four years ago, I was a wreck. I was depressed. I was crying all the time. I, c- I couldn't handle any of it. And I'm four years in and I'm like, let me help you. Let me listen. Let me empathize. Let me, you know, I, Yes, on a pot, right? Like, I mean, come on, Jackie, like we could never have imagined in a million years that we'd be doing a podcast, that we'd be doing all this. Oh yeah, no. If you said we'd be doing a podcast, I would have been like, you're effing kidding me. You'd be like, can someone just straighten out my mom's crazy mind? You know, I can't even imagine her, you know, trying to teach others. Anyway, so just to kind of recap, like, because it's so important, know that your kid does not necessarily have the answers. And even four years later, after Jackie and I having so many conversations, hearing you say it, like it sinks in on a deeper level that I did that to her. And you, I'm sure remember Jackie, I was like, but what about this? But what about this? But tell me, are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? Do you feel this? And Jackie was like, she told me some things, but I do remember you saying like, I don't know, like I'm figuring this out. Like, you know, just can, can you just support me? Like she was very confident about it. And I I think that's rare. You know, I know I've talked to so many parents who are like, my kid's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, and and they, and then they don't say anything. And as you said, and they just pull away, of course, because it's so much pressure. Right. So I just want to recap and reinforce that, that, that tip is like huge. It's not something to gloss over. Like don't expect to get the answers from your kid. They may not know, you know, it's confusing. It's a journey. It's a lifelong process. And seek support, seek a support group, seek mental health support. Support groups are free. And another thing I've heard you say, I was telling myself, I'm not going to do this, but I have to do it like, you know, because I've heard you say so many, like I've heard you say this, talk more about this. I want it to come organically from you. But we talk a lot about like, try not to put your distress on your kid. And I did that to Jackie. Like I would cry and I would, this is so hard for me. And I don't mean to make fun of it because it was me. And I talk to parents now all the time. I do intake and talk to parents. And I get it, like, please, I beg, you know, just try not to express that to your child. Tell your friends, tell your spouse, tell anybody supportive. We've said that in the groups, like, who can you talk to? But I still did it because I didn't get it. But like to think back now on how much stress she was already going through at the prospect of social and medical transition and her own coming to terms with her, her herself and her identity. And now me, her mom, crying and saying, this is so hard for me. Like, it seems crazy that I would have done that now, but... Can you speak to that, Aiden, and how important that is for the trans person to not do that to them? For sure. Those things are often experienced as as traumatic because most children are not interested. And when I say children, I'm going to actually like expand it. Like regardless of how old the child is, they're always a child of that parent, right? And Mm so children are not particularly interested in thinking that they are causing harm to their parents, which is one of the reasons why sometimes there is a lack of communication when I came out, when I was telling my parents, you know, when I said, you know, this is my name, for example, which my mom made explicitly clear she did not like. And, you know, we can laugh and joke about it now, but it didn't really compel me to continue to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Right. And so her communicating to me her feelings and her process while simultaneously wanting me to continue to open up, those things are in opposition with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. But in addition to that, I think that parents and caregivers can look at other models of the process of saying, I'm not going to process this adult thing on my kid, not gender related. So troubles, maybe challenges in a partnership or relationship, healthy boundaries, healthy relationships, that person or one of those people don't go to the children and say, you know, talk, process the struggle in that adult relationship with that kid. Certainly it happens. It's not ideal, but that may be something that people can identify of like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. same sort of sense of boundaries of the reasons why you wouldn't do that is are the exact same reasons why you wouldn't do it about this either, mm-hmm. right? These are your feelings, that your adult feelings connected to your fears and your sadness and your expectations and your version of your dreams and your hopes and your wishes and your future. And none of that can effectively be worked out on your kid. It will end up being a cyclical issue where there is trauma, there is defense, there is rejection, there's I'm going to lean in, right? It's sort of, you know, here's the young person, here's the parent. It's like, well, (laughs) that's what ends up happening, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you can lean in for days and days and days, but I can also lean out for days and days and days, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like that's sort of a shorthand version of, of, you know, one of 
a handful of reasons why not to. And I know to your point, Bridget, that there are people who are listening to this podcast, who will be listening to this podcast, who sit in transforming family meetings or other meetings. And as I say these things or other parents say these things, I can watch parents process and feel guilty mm-hmm. or feel defensive of like, I not only did that, I'm literally still doing that. I did that five minutes before I came to this meeting or five minutes mm-hmm. before I listened mm-hmm. to this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it truly, truly is an act of integrating new information at a rapid pace. Mm-hmm. So when you learn that these are things that are not helpful and in fact, sometimes are overtly harmful to your child, you immediately self-correct. Mm-hmm. And you immediately go back and say, I don't know exactly entirely why I shouldn't be doing this, but I've learned that I should not. And so I just want to recognize that and recognize that I'm going to look for other sources or resources, right? So each step of the way, repair that relationship through acknowledging and validating what that experience. Um, so those relationships can heal, right? It's, we don't want fractured relationships between parents and caregivers and their, and their loved ones. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying caregivers too. And I, it's one of those things that I, you know, I is so important. We have so many foster families, fostering parents, fostering caregivers in our support group as well. And this is not just about parents and caregivers. It's also about, we have also lots of supportive grandparents and <laughs> aunts and uncles and, and people in people's lives who are receptive to learning these same lessons. So thank you for making sure that we're inclusive in our language. Jackie, did you have any thoughts about that? Because I know I'm, I, I brought up, you know, that issue for us and we've talked about it a little bit, but I'd be curious your thoughts too. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what we were just talking about and what you said, Aiden, highlights, you made a point earlier that in transforming families, there's a certain inherent confrontational nature of having a new parent come in and to some degree saying, no, your kid is trans and we're going to, we're going to push back and there's going to be some confrontation. And I really identified with that concept because I think coming out in most cases for a lot of people is a confrontational process. And I identified with, I think I didn't realize it was going to be a confrontational process when I first came out. We've talked before on our podcasts and different programs about how I didn't plan to come out. It was something that kind of happened because I came out to a different person in my life and then they kind of gave me an ultimatum and said I had to come out to other people. So it was just something I kind of did without thinking about a lot. And it became very confrontational very quickly. And I think that I am someone who is very good at confrontation. And that is probably why I did well in coming out and why I really stood my ground and why I argued and had those debates and got myself hormones illegally online a month before I was able to get my appointment with an endocrinologist and why I did all those things that I felt that I needed to do to stand up for myself and make it happen. But I think that a lot of people are very conflict averse, understandably. And I don't think it's fair that your success in coming out in a lot of ways has to do with how confrontational you are and how willing you are to engage in a protracted conflict with your parents. I mean, I I had had other conflicts with my parents. So I kind of, it was like, you know, it was like fighting World War II. We'd done that before. We'd already had World War I. So I kind of, I knew the battleground. I knew which levers to pull. I knew when they would and wouldn't pull the the really ultimate strings, like the financial stuff and college and the car and all those things. And at the end of the day, I felt like, well, there was definitely a period where I really would have been okay with doing the part of pulling back, like you said, and and just not communicating with my parents and everything. But at the end of the day, I was going to college and I there was a certain constructed life that we had all agreed upon that I was on the path toward of being a happy, healthy, successful person in this capitalist system that we live in and succeeding at that game. And that was my card. That was the card that I held that I knew that at the end of the day, they didn't want to give that up. And at the end of the day, I knew that if they weren't going to accept who I was and who I was telling them I was, that they were going to be giving up that idea of me as a successful person, as the child that they wanted me to be, as the success that they wanted me to be. And I think ultimately it came to a compromise. It was, oh, well, I guess we can let you be trans as long as as it means we get to have that, that concept of that successful person. And so 
I think that that worked for me and that's the way I was able to pull it off. But most trans people shouldn't have to like pull off that kind of confrontation and negotiation and leveraging who they are and their success in the world. And, you know, that's a lot of privilege and a lot of a lot of privilege that makes me able to be where I am today and to do that. And I think that's why I'm here doing this podcast and why I want to get this message out, because it's really hard to get to that point. I'm sure you probably have your own story of identifying with all the shit you had to go through and all the times you had to grit your teeth to get to where you are as a trans person. And so if I just had one message based on that, it's just make it easier for the trans person. It shouldn't have to be so hard and it shouldn't be that only the most bullheaded confrontational of us um, get, get to this point. I don't think that's right. Yeah. And what I love so much is that you're also speaking to temperaments. And temperament is sort of this in, innate internal way that people just sort of experience and, and exist in the world. And one of the things that is universally true for trans and non-binary people is that regardless of their natural temperaments, right, the only pathway to get to a place in which they are seen and heard and can live their truth in a way that is fulfilling for them is they have to disregard their temperament and they have to tell people when maybe their, their preference would be like, I don't actually want to tell people much of anything because I'm sort of broadly a private person. Mm-hmm. I'm broadly mm-hmm. not somebody who would engage <laughs> and share things, but as a trans and non-binary person, you know, like those things aren't always options. Certainly there are trans and non-binary people who have elected to never disclose their trans or non-binary and to never do anything that would, you know, resemble transition. But for a lot of people, that's actually not an option of a pathway, right? And so, so I happens, you know, I'm like, I'm this weird mix of, I am a, I'm so significantly an introvert in ways that people just do not believe, right? Because you do a lot of public speaking, but I am confrontation adverse. I'm a hundred percent that person both like in my private world and sort of publicly, like if I'm disgruntled, like I'm going to talk super smack about you somewhere else. Right. Like that person who was not, you know, you know, like somebody who was a benign relationship, right. You know, like somebody was rude as a servant. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go on for days about how I feel about you. But to your face, I'm going to be like, thank you so much. (laughs) You know, I'm just, which is, which I'm not saying is like bad. Right. But, but it is, it, it is sort of speaking Jackie to your sort of like the temperament of, as trans and non-binary people, we don't always have the opportunity to first and foremost exist and communicate from a place that feels natural and inherent to us as human beings. We have to put that aside because we have needs that require other people's participation, especially if you're under the age of 18. It requires. So you have to do what you have to do. And sometimes you know, that does not look pretty. Sometimes that does not look good. And the messy nature of that can sometimes distract from what actually needs to happen. Because parents will say, well, my kid is doing fill in the blank that they don't like to do that maybe is their attempt to sort of gather the strength or gather the tools to communicate and see what they need to say. Or they're doing those things to try to counteract the things that they're not yet able to talk about. But those things become distractions. And, you know, you ask me, like, what happens when a parent's like, you know, they can't go on hormones because they're 16 and they can't even legally get a tattoo, right? It's like, A, thankfully, that question is a dime a dozen, right? But that one, that's a dime. There's like a handful that's mm-hmm. like a dime a dozen. They're predictable. And the things that are driving those questions are also pretty predictable at this point, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I have a pretty deep understanding of what's going on, right? And so I don't find it to be useful to engage in a, in a, like, let me provide evidence of why that theory that you have is incorrect. Let me provide evidence that will guide and inform you to get to a place to recognize that you don't have all the information. Mm -hmm. And if you had all the information, there's a higher likelihood that you would be able to expand what is a relatively narrow view of like my kid's 16 or my kid's 12 or my kid's whatever age. And they can't possibly know if I can provide that information. You're like, Oh, maybe they do know. Right. Then that space is then created for like, okay, this seems super, super counterintuitive, but you know, maybe my kid does need to have medical intervention that I never would have thought. But if I just sort of like, you're wrong. Right. Which is often what kids do. 
you're wrong. And it's like, okay, well, that would just effectively shut down all of the communication because now yeah. we're fighting over who's wrong, right? right? Right. So that's, you know, one of the, one of the ways. And, and I'm not big on scare tactics. I'm not somebody who's going to like put forth the, the statistics of things that terrify parents. Parents are already scared. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Their resistance is fear frequently, parents and caregivers, right? Mm-hmm. So for me to be like, well, 50% of blah, 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 which is true, but it's not helpful, right? And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if I can talk to a place of like having parents feel more comfortable, feel safer and engage in a process of like, I can do this thing that makes no sense to me as a cisgender person. I don't get it at all. But I, if I know that if I do this, rather than I'm going to prevent my kid from going to this scary place, right? If I do this thing to your point, Jackie, it's like, you know, then there's a higher likelihood that my kid is going to launch. My kid's going to do well. And so we don't, I don't practice or focus from a deficit perspective. It's all about opportunity and how do we get your kid or your loved one to a place that you would want them to be. Right. And, and integrate the fact that they're trans and non-binary because, because they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. They can, they can coexist. So it's a great point about the statistics. And unfortunately, I think for many people who are not as educated, they might also see those statistics and dismiss them as, oh, well, there's evidence that it's a mental illness and that we need to deal with it some other way. So, yeah, that's such a great point. And it's not not the easy answer, but the the hard, the real work of getting people into that vulnerable, comfortable space. Very well said. I want to bring up another big one, which is name and pronouns. And I just want to lead into it by saying, I want to circle back. Okay. Because I am the non-confrontational person. Jackie and I are like as opposite. Are we not as opposite as two human beings could be? And as much as we love each other and are doing this, work like I will avoid conference, right, Jackie? <laughs> so I do want to circle back to when Jackie said, like, there could be confrontation at a support group meeting because it's not going to feel like confrontation. And, and I think we're saying confrontation more in the literal sense of like, if you're misgendering your child, someone's probably going to point that out to you lovingly and gently, right? So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So if we get into, if we can get into a little bit about names and pronouns, because it's it's a really big one that comes up a lot, right? And a lot of new parents, like your child, I mean, this is so consistent. I mean, it's, the story is like, I know everybody's story is different, but my goodness, because I've talked to so many parents, I've been in so much work with me. My kid just came out. Their name is this. They want me to use, you know, their name is now Mary. They want me to use she pronouns. What? How am I supposed to do that? They've been he all their life or vice versa. You know, they've been she all their life. And now I'm supposed to use he or they, my kid has said that, or someone in my life, whatever, has said that they're non-binary. And it's like this huge issue for people, you know, and it's a huge issue for the trans or non-binary person, because for them, it feels so like, this is me. This is who I am. I can imagine it's like, just get it and start using these. And what is the problem? And it's so important to me. Like that message feels so consistent from all our kids, from all the transgender people I've come to know and we've come to, you know, hear from in our community. But for so many of the caregivers, family members or teachers, I mean, this is where we can bring it to like everyone in this person's life. Oh, it's, it's so hard. And how do I, and my brain won't do it. And so how do you help people with that in? Because it is so important and it can be so triggering and painful to be misgendered. Yeah. I think that the, there's sort of a handful of different things depending upon variables, which of course we don't have time to kind of get in the weeds about that. But part of the reason why names and pronouns are so important or is the exact same reason why it's so hard for people to shift is that we construct identity and we construct relationships and we construct meaning and, and names, particularly names, um, but also not necessarily pronouns like he or she, but relationships like daughter, son. Mm -hmm. right? Those are symbolic of the emotional relationship that we have with this young person. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody is asking, or adult, when somebody is asking them to shift names and pronouns, it challenges and it feels like a threat to the relationship. And so as that person's like, look, I'm still the same person, but I need you to use Aiden, right? Like the reason why it's so important is that it is symbolic of identity and the reason why it's so hard is that it's symbolic of identity, mm-hmm. right? And so, there, you know, there's a variety of different things. Like, I just was meeting with the parents parents the other day, and they told me, like, you know, this is the name my kid wants me to use, and this is their pronouns. And then as quickly as they said that, 
just continued using birth name and the wrong pronouns, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. acknowledge they knew what they were doing and they continued mm-hmm. doing it. And so there's a difference between the habits and the process of breaking that habits and the tips and the tricks that people can, can use to break that habits. And there are some, there's some tangible things that people can do to break that habit, which is very different than that place of I'm an emotional, I am in emotional resistance. Mm-hmm. And so I had these parents say, this mom specifically say, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can use this name and this pronoun. And she was as being as honest and true and real as she could. And I said, I know you can. Mm-hmm. I know you can. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, she was in an echo chamber of everyone saying, yeah, I don't think I could do that either. That's really mm-hmm. hard. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it takes that outside person to challenge or confront uh, the place of like, oh, yes, you can. You can do it. It's going to be hard. And you can't imagine now being six months from now and doing it. But I assure you that one thing is 100% true is time's going to keep ticking. And so six months is going to arrive and it's either going to arrive with you or without you. And so this is a beautiful opportunity for you to stay in the car, Mm -hmm. right? To stay engaged. And so giving people permission to talk about what, you know, I'm starting to learn and reframe. I think we've had these conversations around the idea of grief. And I got to tell you, as a trans person, the model of grief around my existence has always been something that has just like rubbed up against me in some particularly uncomfortable ways, but it always felt incomplete. Like I didn't want to invalidate parents' experience and caregivers' experience or partners' experience of grief, but it just was always problematic because it's like, here's this person who is probably more alive and more present and, and more engaged and you're simultaneously grieving. And that's, that's a weird thing, but I've since learned the idea of ambiguous loss. And I think ambiguous loss is a much better framework mm-hmm. around feelings of loss, but they're not clean. That's not clear when somebody passes away or, or, you know, a pet passes away, there's loss. There was a thing that existed that physically no longer exists And depending upon community and culture, there's generally a process of recognizing the life Mm -hmm. and recognizing the people's existence without that person in it Mm -hmm. any longer. When parents and caregivers have trans and non-binary people, there is a sense of loss, but it's incomplete. Mm -hmm. And so there is a relationship of, you know, there's this physical person, but these names and pronouns I don't recognize it. So it feels like an emotional, psychological loss to me. So I refuse. Mm -hmm. And so if we can talk about that of like, let's talk more about that loss. Let's name the loss for what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And then simultaneously on the other end of it, if somebody's physically or medically transitioning, there's a relationship with physical loss. Right. My, Mm -hmm. my son now looks like my daughter. My daughter now looks like my son. If we can talk to the feelings that are a loss connected to, what seems like a physical loss with somebody who is physically present. If somebody can have a nuanced conversation with parents or providers, they can talk in the weeds, mm-hmm. talk in the weeds about that stuff, as opposed to, well, you know, your person really wants you to use these name and pronouns. And so you should really do it. And it's like zero help, zero practical tools never to be able to actually do able to do that. That's so helpful, Aiden. I don't think anybody explained it to me quite that way in the beginning. So I really hope that people hear that and feel that empathy for how it is hard. And I love the term ambiguous loss. That feels so accurate and true for me and what I went through in the beginning and for so many of the parents I talked to and calling it grief doesn't feel right anymore. Um, It's just such a different unique experience. So thank you. Thank you for that. So we're, we are, you know, we do want to say that it's important to embrace the person's pronouns and name and that we recognize it's hard and that you can do it. I am evidence of that. I thought it was too hard in the beginning. I was that person who thought I'd never be able to do it. And now I can't fathom anything else. Like four years later, I can say, Jackie's my daughter. I'm so proud of her. I I don't see her as anyone else. I don't feel any loss. I don't feel that anything's missing that I had before because my child is here and she's hers, who she is. And we have a wonderful relationship. And just if I can give anybody out there hope at four years in, you know, and it didn't take four years, you know, we were here no, much sooner, much earlier on, you know, I don't know, six months, a year, probably of some form of struggle, but it happens. It happens. We have neuroplasticity. We can, you know, we can adapt. We are so resilient. And I've talked to parents where in the beginning, it's like, I 
I just feel so deeply for them because they're like, I can't think about anything else. And it's so hard and I'm so worried and stressed. And I'm like, I swear, like everything else in life, think of hard things you've been through. You know, you, you don't think about them anymore. We come through it. We find a way and we're resilient. So we hope to share that message with you today and some of these initial suggestions for the early stages, which truly are, I think, the best help and support that's out there. And the way you're describing things, Aiden, is very different from what we often hear, which is just like, just get on board and say the right things and do the right things. And there's so much empathy and compassion in what you're sharing and recognition for what everyone's going through and honoring all of those. And I love that you are able to see parents and caregivers through all of those stages, you know, and, and, and have trust that they will, they will integrate and, um, and be able to embody these ways of, of loving and interacting with their kids so that they can be where Jackie and I are now, which is like, we always do. We don't even talk about this. So we don't talk about her being trans ever outside of these conversations. And I just, I know that probably running out of time, but there's a, a couple of things that's to your point that you just made that it's part of time moving forward is that conversations around gender that are so centralized to the family and the family functioning, it will not stay there, right? And so what feels like, oh my God, my kid's gender is occupying everything I'm doing. I'm, I'm not sleeping. My spouse and I, my partner and I, we're fighting and mm-hmm. I'm not taking care of my other children. Mm-hmm. All of those things, like when you're in it, it's hard to see. And so one of the things that other parents or providers, you know, can do is, is help, again, broaden that lens of saying, my experience, I feel 100% confident in telling you that it will not stay like this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and the quicker you can sort of manage and navigate what's going on for you, the quicker it will not be the focus of every single thing that you think about and your family does. And mm-hmm. if you give yourself permission in a couple of years, you're going to reflect back just as you said of like, wow, that's very different. One other thing around names and pronouns is, is that there are dynamics in relationships where levity is really important, mm-hmm. right? And that not every person who is struggling around names and pronouns is about the emotional struggle. Like it, for people, it's like, I desperately want to, but I'm just having a really hard time doing it. I have countless times suggested the name and pronoun jar. Mm-hmm. Right. I have found it to be incredibly um, helpful and it removes the friction that can happen. So you implement with your young person um, an agreement of like every time the wrong name or the wrong pronoun is used and you attach most ideally a monetary value. But that isn't always, you know, it takes privilege to have monetary value attached to it. But you attach mm-hmm. something of mm-hmm. value to that. And and so every time the wrong name or the wrong pronoun is used, like a marble or, or something goes in something that is visible and it gives the young person permission to say, ah, you got to put a marble in the jar mm-hmm. and it's less confrontational because mm-hmm. now it's about like, oh, it's like a, it's like a game almost. Right. And it removes sort of, and, and so it, it ends up being kind of a win-win because oftentimes parents and caregivers absolutely do not recognize how frequently they're using the wrong name and pronoun. Mm-hmm. They just don't realize or recognize it. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a visual representation in one dot, one day, like, wow, that base is completely full. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. helps create and change habits, information mm-hmm. helps change. But on the other end, as that young person is sort of suffering through their parents' process, they're rewarded with money. They're mm-hmm. rewarded with extra computer time. They're rewarded mm-hmm. with game time, right? And mm-hmm. so it, mm-hmm. this process that is, that is um, healthier and it has more levity to it. And I found it to be tremendously helpful for some families. That's a great, I love that exercise. I just want to point out just because a lot of our conversation has been very focused on a more binary trans experience, how it might be. And I mean, in many cases, like I know people who identify as non-binary who might be a lot more inclined to come out if they did identify as binary, but they think about coming out to their families and it's like, well, they're never going to, they're never going to understand. They're never going to use they, them pronouns. So there's no point in even trying to come out. Um, And I think a lot about how I wonder how my experience might've been different if it was not just switching from one construct of who your child is to another kind of predefined construct of who your child is, but trying to exist outside of those constructs. And, and I wonder if you've seen families struggle more with children coming out as non-binary and, and how you kind of tackle that. And if it's a different way of having to reframe things in parents' minds. 
Yeah, there is, sometimes it is, it presents more challenges and sometimes it, sometimes it presents more challenges in the sense of if people have seen and experienced the world in a binary way, seeing the world in a broader non-binary way can present just sort of challenges to a person's personal way of existing in the world. So there's that part. And then by extension, all of a sudden, people who have never been concerned at all with grammar one time <laughs> in their life, all of a sudden become really invested in the inappropriate nature of using they, them for singular. And it's like, okay. Right. So sometimes we use humor and talk about that. So there's different sort of mechanisms. Um, and part of that, my job is understanding the temperament of that person, right? If that person is sort of like, you know, can look at that then I can meet them with humor. If that person is crying, I'm not going to make a joke. Typically, mm-hmm. sometimes I do, but it's, <laughs> it, but it's tricky. It's very, very tricky. The other thing that, that can happen around non-binary that I have seen is a hope that non-binary is the landing place because Mm -hmm. they interpret that meaning to be no medical or permanent intervention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there can be an over-investment and over-engagement that ends up ironically creating almost a singular narrative about Mm -hmm. an expansive non-binary identity experience. And so it flip-flops. And then there are parents Mm -hmm. who for a variety of different reasons, get to this place of like, I just wish my kid was binary, mm-hmm. right? So there, it, it sort of shows up in a variety of different ways based on kind of the places where parents are or caregivers are kind of feeling like they're up against something. And the thing that's interesting about, you know, folks who are non-binary is that even, excuse me, even within their family relationships or, or primary caregiver relationships, even if those people get to the place of using the right pronouns, for the most part, non-binary people are going to be consistently misgendered and used the wrong pronoun in their public spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's that chronic ongoing experience of trauma of like, there's a default of like, I'm non-binary, but people are likely going to use a pronoun with me from that place strategically, what's the least harmful pronoun that people, right? And, and how do I sort of manage that? And, and so there are different factors and different things to consider around non-binary, both for the non-binary person, but also the support network around them about what they're invested in. Thank you. I appreciate that. I just wanted to make sure we address that because I think it's so important that we're, as we speak, not just to our experience, but making sure that we're addressing other experiences and portraying as comprehensive a view of what it is to be transgender as possible and not not limiting that to people transitioning from one binary to the other, but recognizing gender as as a rather arbitrary social construct and recognizing the idea that people can exist within or outside of that construct to the extent that they identify with it or not. So Aiden, I could talk to you, listen to you for hours, <laughs> but your time is precious. We have, I know. And I get to see you, I think tomorrow again on a meeting. <laughs> so um, you're amazing. Um, but is there anything that we left out? I know, you know, you have so much wisdom and so much to share that can make such a difference in people's lives. Is there anything that comes to mind that you want to add? Cause we have the time, you know, we, there's nothing more important in the world to us. So if there's anything that comes to mind that you still want to share, please do. I think that uh, we've talked a lot about gathering information from other parents and gathering information from professionals, mental health professionals. I also think it's critical for parents and caregivers to gather medical information, even if there's no intention of using it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have experienced parents and caregivers struggling with moving forward with medical intervention if their young person wants that because they don't have access to the correct or accurate information. Mm-hmm. And so get that information, meet with that medical provider, you know, good medical providers will meet with parents and caregivers without their child even being there. So it's just purely as a process of gathering correct and accurate information because part of making decisions for all of us is that we have to have information and there's no possible way that a parent can make a decision on behalf of, of what is best for their child without that information, right? Mm-hmm. It's critical. It's so very critical. And one of the things that is the outcome of, of such a terrible thing as COVID is that resources are much more available now because there's telehealth. Mm-hmm. Mental health services are available via telehealth. Medical mm-hmm. services are available via telehealth. Support groups. You know, mm-hmm. as you know, we have people who are in other countries who are now yeah. participating in our support groups, which is really exciting and remarkable. And I think that 
being critical of the mental health provider that's work, that's working with you and your family. I would encourage people to exercise extreme caution with pairing themselves and their child with somebody who does not have a robust amount of experience and history working with trans and non-binary folks. And I know that that's not always an option. And I recognize that in urban areas, there's going to be easier access. But again, because of COVID and because of online services, they, they're not going away. We're not going to lose online access to things. Mm-hmm. Like I don't even have an office. I don't plan on having an office anytime mm-hmm. soon. Like I will work remotely or telehealth completely it's one one piece of bad or inaccurate information from a mental health provider can have irreparable harm and put a person and their family on a dangerous trajectory. Yes. One piece of information, yes. right? And so it's crucial that even as a parent or caregiver, if you're like, I don't want somebody supporting us, right? Because mm-hmm. I that's a very frequent place. Expanding that and saying, but what I don't want more is if this is true and you can hold on to it not being true if that's where you need to be mm-hmm. but if this is true i don't want to do something that is going to ultimately harm my child mm-hmm. because if parents can connect back to a, like a harm prevention model that there are mental health providers who are just saying things that are astronomically incorrect for example Rapid onset gender dysphoria is not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. And even if a mental health provider tells you it is a thing, I'm here to tell you they're wrong. It's not a thing. And I can go into, you know, multiple details of why it's not a thing. But if for nothing else, that's not how diagnosing somebody with gender dysphoria works. Mm-hmm. It has to be six months and at least, you know, two of the criteria met which is flies right in the face of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Those, those things can't coexist. But beyond that, rapid onset gender dysphoria implies that somebody does not have an internal process before disclosing. Mm-hmm. And just because you don't know the process, just because you weren't aware of the process, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? So really what that you know should have been was parents feeling this information is rapid and they're having a lot of distress about it, right? So just as an example, like, uh, provider saying, you know, oh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. It's like, that's not a thing. So if your provider's telling you that, you have to sever that relationship mm-hmm. because it's not your child's job or your job as a parent or caregiver to educate that provider and then pay them to do it. That's mm-hmm. astronomical, right? So I could go, ooh, I can go on about this one. <laughs> but I won't. No, I'm so glad you said that, Aiden, because we have had in our support group, even many parents are therapists and they're very forthright about saying, I got no training in this. Like I am a therapist and I needed to find a gender specialist to take my kid to because I realized we don't learn about this. So what you're saying is so incredibly, incredibly important and important for people to know as shocking as it may be, there are non-affirming mental health and medical practitioners out there that actually are literally non-affirming of transgender and non-binary people overtly and covertly both. I don't know which is more scary, but both. So know that's out there. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I would have, (laughs) realizing that we hadn't brought that up after would have been upsetting. So I'm really, really glad that you did. Oh my goodness. Okay, so well, the last thing we always do, which I know you don't need is is a plug. Like you probably don't want a plug (laughs) because I know you're like over, you're so sought after. And like, you know, to be honest, you know, I think we need more mental health professionals who are serving the population you're serving. But still, you know, if there's anything you want to share about where people can find you, learn more from you. I was just going to say you need a clone, not a not a plug. Exactly. We need more of you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I am incredibly busy in, in, you know, a variety of different ways. But I am so passionately and deeply committed to the health and well-being, not just of trans and non-binary people, but I'm committed to the health and well-being of parents and caregivers. I just really am, am just so passionately committed to that, that even when my practice is closed, I will see parents. And so I would be, I'm happy to have you all share my, my email. And if, you know, if there's some reason that I can't, I feel like I have a good network across this country that I can help people get connected to. Certainly the Los Angeles Gender Center is a resource that it's a collection of 17 mental health providers that all have expertise in this area. 
that we can provide services to people across California. And we have clinicians that are also licensed in New York. So those are the areas that people can practice right now, children's hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of resources, but if you are a parent or you're a caregiver in some part of the country and you were thinking like, this is all fantastic what y'all talked about and none of this feels accessible to me, reach out and I'm happy to try to make that connection. And if I'm not providing therapy and I am coaching or providing psychoeducation, there's a lot that I can do outside the state of California and I'm happy to do that. Really good to know. Okay. Thank you, Aiden. We don't want to overburden you because you give so much and you volunteer, but it's really good for folks to know that. And that this is a good primer for, you know, like listen to this first, maybe listen a few times (laughs) to get all the wisdom that Aiden has and then reach out for the unique support that you may need. And you can certainly find lots of resources on our transgender school website. As you all know, if you're following us, um, we're all part of I think a support network that has a lot of resources and a lot available to help people as we're all passionate about. So thank you so much for being with us, Aiden. I knew this would be a really important and meaningful conversation, but it even exceeded my expectations. And I thank you so much. And we're going to catch your spouse, Dr. Joe, to get her on the podcast too. I know you two are so busy. So just a little, you know, um, preview for everybody listening that we're going to be lucky enough to have her on the podcast as well. The, The power team who's out there helping so many of us. Um, Any final thoughts, Jackie? Yeah, I'm just so grateful that you took the time to be here. I hope this was a really informative, educational podcast for everyone. And I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, and we'll make sure all Aiden's information is in the show notes because we're sure you'll want to learn more and hear more. And he's presenting all the time out there in the world so you can find him in lots of ways if you want more, which I'm sure you do after hearing this podcast. So thank you so much, Aiden. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. Our pleasure. All right. Bye, everybody. Take care. and We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 